Welcome to Bootlegged Innovations with your host, John Schultz. Each week, we show you how to make your business enterprise more efficient with proven techniques that will help you spend less, break less, and make more. Now, here is John Schultz. Welcome to Episode 4 of Bootlegged Innovations, uh, where it is our mission to bridge the gap between the needs of the business and the ability of the workforce to execute in a secure and resilient environment. Uh, before I get to my guests this week, uh, this is week number 11 of home confinement for me. Uh, definitely going a little stir crazy. Uh, this week, uh, I've just given up, and you will likely hear the two roosters, Ricky and Silver, uh, playing Marco Polo. Uh, my audio engineer is actually going to send me instruction on how to mic a chicken uh, during this show, so it won't happen this show, but in a future show, uh, we'll just uh, we'll go live live outside to the farm and see if we what Ricky and uh, and Silver have to say. And uh, what did we get to done in the last uh, in the last week? Uh, this week, got to do something kind of fun on Cinco de Mayo. Uh, our local uh, shout out to our local credit union, Vistar. They invited they did a special per- virtual performance of the Jacksonville Symphony and had home deliveries for Cinco de Mayo. So walk and and salsa and, and cheese and chips and margaritas were actually delivered to my front door. And then I got to go on to a virtual Zoom meeting of, uh, of uh, the Jacksonville Symphony, which was a, a lot of fun and a way to kind of blow off some steam. Also been mow- getting on the mower every evening and mowing for two to three hours with 47 acres. Uh, that takes a, you know, two or three hours a day. I can pretty well knock it out. I'm uh, also getting re- uh, reacquainted with my crossbow and my my bicycle finally got on my bicycle again this week. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're getting ready to, uh, put a new page on our website should be up in the next week or so where you'll be able to go and get all of the episodes as well as information on all the guests, uh, on our website, uh, at bootleg.life. So there'll be a page dedicated to, uh, to the podcast. Uh, so the uh, this, uh, every week I try to share at least one personal story for myself, and uh, this week it's a relatively mild one. It is that I am a college football zealot. Uh, cannot wait for college football season. And in 1997, uh, not only did I form Allied Reliability at the time, but I also did something else. I decided that every year I was going to go to a new college football stadium that I had never been to, but I was going to go with a friend of mine that was an alumni of whatever college football stadium it was, and for that weekend, I was going to be a local fan, and I was going to tailgate with the locals, buy the jersey, buy the hat. And so I've now been to uh, 28 different college stadiums. And uh, every year, just it's one of the highlights for my year. My year is to go to a college stadium that I've never been to before. And so with that, what I would like to do is uh, introduce this week's topic. Uh, This week's topic is overall equipment effectiveness, better known as OEE, necessary but not sufficient. Uh, And that's actually the necessary but not sufficient is a call out to one of my co uh, to one of my guests this week that we'll get into introductions here in a little bit. But I find that organizations, number one, often don't even know how to properly define OEE and they often can confuse it with TEEP. Uh, but then they also will start applying OEE where it shouldn't be applied. Uh, and they'll think that it is the only scorecard metric that they need, and they cannot get to actionable intelligence. And this week, our guests are all about getting to actionable intelligence in order to be able to drive operational improvement. 
my first guest, I actually met at an operational event, uh, excellence event in Chicago back in 2008. Shortly after she had actually co-authored a book with, with uh, one of my personal heroes, Eli Goldratt, who I think, uh, you know, with theory of constraints and critical chain, not only really defined that science, but really changed the way people wrote books uh, and, and presenting them as business novels to make them easy, more interesting and easy, more easily consumed. She is also the co-founder of the Demand Driven Institute, and a story we'll get into a little later. She is an amazing ranch hand, as it turns out. Uh, so, Carol, her name is Carol Patak. Uh, Carol, would you mind introducing yourself and what the Demand Driven Institute does to the audience? Hi, John. Thanks for having me on your show today. Appreciate that. Uh, first, let me start with what the Demand Driven Institute is, is our mission in the world, we've developed and codified the methodology around demand-driven. And very simply put, our job is to get the world to say yes to demand-driven methods so that they can have more robust and resilient supply chains. Uh, we don't do any consulting, we don't do any software, and we never ever have done any software or consulting. Uh, for myself, I started out on the shop floor at minimum wage and worked my way up to being a lead and a supervisor and a manager. Uh, ended up in the uh, biomedical industry for a while, uh, have an undergrad degree in biology. Uh, left the East Coast in uh, New York State to move out to the West Coast where everybody, all the excitement was in aerospace at the time. Was a production control manager in an aerospace company and uh, had the fortunate opportunity of having a greenfield startup uh, where we did all the overhead bins for Boeing 737, 757s. And that was really interesting because that was the first time that we combined the theory of constraints and lean and uh, MRP together. And that was my very first ever public speaking engagement. It was called Yes, You Can because we've listened to four years of you can't do that that way. And uh, so after aerospace went out and did do some consulting for a while and discovered that a lot of the world had the same problems that we had faced, we were able to help some folks and then uh, got recruited into a tiny little company you probably never heard of called IBM and uh, worked for IBM for a while. Uh, came off the road, got tired of the road work, uh, came off the road for a while and did uh, their ERP and a analyst uh, job. And uh, there was this one software company that just really caught my eye because it just kept moving. Uh, very in a very positive way and coincidentally I was uh, contacted by a headhunter and uh, long story short I ended up being hired on as vice president and global industry executive uh, for PeopleSoft and there it was my responsibility to figure out the strategy for the manufacturing and distribution software and that's actually where demand-driven manufacturing started believe it or not way back in 2001 so I always love it when people say oh it's brand new and say yeah we've been working on it for 20 years so it's typical overnight success, uh, but the uh, but Oracle, of course, did the hostile takeover, and uh, I decided to go teach for a few years because I was retired. I was done. I was off the road, sitting on my porch, you know, looking at the water, having a grand time, and I went to go teach at the university. And a friend of mine uh, came over and said, "I want to show you something that we did." And it turned out that what he was doing with his team was the piece that I was totally missing for demand driven, and that's where the institute started. So. Long story to get back to the Institute, but uh, that's where Chad Smith came to see me at the university, and if I was smart at all, I recognized that what he and his team had put together was the innovation that made that vision of demand-driven a reality. So I appreciate being on the show today. I was uh, very fortunate. I knew John for a long time and uh, was very glad to be at that event to get to meet you and, uh, and do that keynote that day. 
Yeah, that brings me to our second guest, who was actually the host of that event back in 2008 that uh, had the good sense to, uh, to, to book Carol as the keynote and uh, less sense to invite me to also speak. But uh, I think it went uh, reasonably well and certainly are completely redefined the way that I thought about uh, maintenance, the maintenance and reliability's role in an overall supply chain. Because up to this point, I had been largely a maintenance and reliability uh, subject matter expert that did not necessarily, while I understood metrics like overall equipment effectiveness, understood big six losses, really did not understand the application across the overall supply chain. So my second guest is a serial digital entrepreneur and has dedicated a good portion of his career to operational excellence and is the founder and CEO of Sage Clarity. And as we will also get into later, he is a high-tech chef, or at least he tries to be a high-tech chef, I think maybe I should say. Uh, his name is John Oskins. John, could you explain, uh, please explain uh, yourself and, uh, and, and what Sage Clarity does? Sure. So, uh, so Sage Clarity is a leading provider of Industry 4.0 and MES ecosystem applications. And we like to talk about ourselves as developing cutting-edge solutions to enable the next generation manufacturing enterprise. Uh, we have a suite of products that unlock the value of MES applications in new and interesting ways. Um, as far as my background, uh, as John mentioned, uh, this is my third company. Um, I started my career at General Electric early on and decided that I think I was uh, better suited um, and, and had aspirations for, for starting my own company. So my first company was credit card backed. My second company was venture backed, uh, which is where I met uh, John and Carol. And my third company now is customer backed. So three very different perspectives in, in launching companies. Fantastic, thanks John. I, I think we can all relate to if you've had multiple uh, rolls, rolls of the dice, it is nice when you finally get to the point that your venture is actually customer backed. Uh, so that's uh, definitely a different journey than the credit card and the second mortgage backed uh, initial <laughs> startup. That's for sure. Um, my third guest I'm excited to have on the show. Uh, Alla actually holds a distinction of having been a lead data analytics uh, for both Tesla and Walmart. One of the few people that I know that have done either of the two. And she's actually had the opportunity to be uh, on the data analytics team and actually lead that effort for a couple of different organizations that are known for big data analytics. Uh, today, I'll, uh, and I'll, I'll probably butcher this again, but we'll try it, uh, Anishkova, 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 yes, Anishkova, I finally got it, I think, I finally <laughs> got the uh, less American pronunciation, is the head of product <laughs> for Throughput. Ala, can you please explain what your role is at Throughput and a little bit about your background? Uh, sure. Um, so Throughput is an industrial AI company. We are based in uh, Silicon Valley. Um, we manage operations bottlenecks to increase output and cash on hand where it really matters. Um, we try to use the existing data that the company already has, their existing resources, um, but we try to apply the metrics that make more sense for operations excellence to drive the best results. 
my role is focused on the software development uh, piece to drive the roadmap and to make the uh, software uh, scalable and accessible to businesses worldwide. Um, just a bit about my background. Um, I'm from St. Petersburg, Russia. I came to U.S. to sunny California, uh, pursuing my MBA degree. Uh, first choice was uh, focusing in, in international business, but then taking some operations courses, I got really excited about the field. And I added a, another major in supply chain and operations management. And that decision really um, defined my career choices to date. Um, later on, as you mentioned, I uh, dove uh, deeper into the e-commerce side of walmart.com uh, business and uh, uh, got additional appreciation of uh, the use of big data and uh, development of software that can link many different siloed operations uh, into a cohesive uh, process that uh, um, now I'm you know, continuing to follow that software side of things. Um, and the last uh, eight years before joining uh, Throughput, I have been at Tesla, uh, which gave me an opportunity to really try myself in very, very different areas. I have started in supply chain um, in the inbound logistics, managing the flow of products from all over the world, the, the parts that comprise the car. And uh, that was a very exciting time when I joined because we were just launching the first uh, fully built by Tesla vehicle Model S. And uh, there was nothing. There were like literally no, no bill of material. Uh, suppliers were not defined. We didn't know how to you know, put the production line together. And uh, we were also given direction not, well, to, to say goodbye to SAP relationship and <laughs> build in-house. So um, that gave me ability, uh, well, that direction of building house was uh, true throughout my career at Tesla and uh, gave opportunity to build the first uh, transportation management system, the ERP system, the um, like warehouse uh, operations, like manufacturing execution system for some of the most complex uh, type of operations and remanufacturing and also quality and diagnostic system. Um, so now um, I've, you know, tried to tap my um, feet into different areas and at Throughput I'm uh, trying to scale that knowledge and apply some of the new focusing techniques uh, as I was exposed to more formally the works of Ellie Goldratt and Carol <laughs> actually. that <laughs> um, I'm trying to extend it into the work that we're doing. That is a great intro, Olive. Uh, and once again, here I am week four and continue to be humbled by the quality of the guests that I'm able to get on the show and their background and their willingness to come on and uh, and share that background. So, Carol, I'd like to get into the meat of the show. And uh, could you start, you, you alluded to it a little bit with both the origins as well as a little bit about what demand-driven uh, is, but could you give us what you consider to be kind of the, the formal definition of demand-driven and what its origins are? The formal definition uh, actually harkens back to about 2003, and it's the same definition today as we developed back then, and it is the ability for a company to sense changes in customer demand, adapt planning and production, pull from suppliers, and do it all in real time. 
Now we've added to that the also the need to be able to innovate to market needs. So if you really think about it, demand-driven boils down to really three words, sense, adapt, and innovate. So it started actually, it was a very late evening in Pleasanton, California. It was my boss and I in his office uh, having one of our usual conversations, which were typically uh, usually quite loud and uh, carrying on. And I remember, all I remember is slamming my fist on the table and said, no, doggone it, Bill, it's not that, it's demand driven. And the two of us looked at each other and we wrote it on the whiteboard and said, let's take a break till tomorrow and see if that looks uh, as good tomorrow as it did uh, that day. And it did. And we spent a lot of money in PeopleSoft marketing that term. Uh, we went out and we bought John the uh, JCIT uh, software. We knew it had something to do with redoing how the supply chain was considered. We knew it had something to do with how uh, analytics were done. We knew it had something on how to change uh, planning. Exactly how, I didn't know. The good news was is when you're vice president of PeopleSoft and uh, you're growing as fast as we were, I had the ability that uh, we had Ellie Goldratt coming in to help us out. We had Dick Link in to help us with sales and operations planning, Deborah Smith with analytics. Talk about the all-star cast. Holy crap. And it was truly humbling. I mean, yeah, no kidding. You got, I had the man himself lined up. And, uh, I mean, Dick was in there teaching our, uh, our, our supply chain folks what SNOP really is about because SNOP has gotten badly distorted. And now with Demand Driven, it makes SNOP now possible, what his original vision was. So he was in there, and as fast as he was teaching them, they were coding it. It was just a crazy time. So that's where it really came from. But the knowledge on actually how to actually do it and say what's step one uh, really didn't come till about 2007 when Chad Smith and I started to collaborate together. <laughs> what an amazing journey that must have been to have be able to work on projects with literally the, the absolute who's who. Of, uh, of, of, of the movement. That's, that's amazing. Uh, John, one of the things that she references in her de definition of, uh, of demand driven is being able to respond to customer demand in real time with real time data. Uh, in your experience, uh, having been one of the first systems that I was ever exposed to in the packaging industry of being able to do real time analytics back in, back in the early two thousands, uh, how real-time does real-time data need to be to act upon the insights being kind of surprised every, every, every day at the end of the shift uh, or, ever, uh, or at the end of the week or the end of the month, whether or not you actually like your report card? Uh, often I liken it to, I was always amazed by kids at school that had no idea what their grades were going to be. Uh, you know, they gave us the formula at the beginning of the, of, of the semester and the quarter, we knew what, how, how things were going to be calculated. We got, we got our test results. We got our homework results. But people were just always surprised by their grades. And uh, from, a real, from a data perspective, how real-time is real-time? Well, so interesting. So I think real-time is a relative scale. So uh, we actually had an interesting blog series that we did a couple of years ago called um, 50 KPIs to 10 and how you can actually simplify uh, your scorecards uh, as you move to real time. So if you are currently doing monthly KPIs, uh, getting to weekly is better than, than where you're at. If you're currently at weekly KPIs, going from weekly to daily um, is, a, is a big improvement. And then certainly going from, from daily to, to, to hourly and even almost minute-wise kind of real time. It kind of depends on what, you know, the, the purpose of the data, if you will. But there is this journey that companies embark on, which is migrating 
into more and more real-time nature of information. So there's not one size fits all that says everything should be, you know, real-time, up-to-the-minute kind of uh, information. Um, OTIF, on-time and full metric, for example, um, probably not going to get that onto uh, that level of uh, responsiveness. But getting going, starting that journey and moving your organization's uh, through that continuum um, really helps. And I, and I think uh, a client executive said it best, which which he said, look, I don't want to have a 60-page slide deck at my monthly meetings. Um, I want to be able to look at data in real time on my time and spend the time in my monthly staff meeting talking about actions, not about reviewing data. So it's really kind of – so as you get into more of a real-time framework, it, it enables – getting into more of an action environment than a review environment. Fantastic answer. Uh, but speaking of being surprised uh, by tech, uh, that brings up a story that you actually shared with us uh, since I asked guests to share a personal story. Uh, and this ties into the whole uh, high tech chef thing. Could you, uh, could you share that story with the audience briefly? Sure. So, so I do like to cook uh, and I, I spent a lot of money on Spoker a few years ago. Um, it was so advanced that it only worked with Wi-Fi and, and internet control. So uh, when I first got it, it would shut down every two hours. So every two hours, I'd have to restart it, you know, et cetera. So I called tech support and started asking, and they started asking some questions. So they asked me questions like, well, is the smoker in the sun? And I'm like, well, of course, it's, a, it's an outdoor smoker, right? And, and they said, you know, well, can you move to the shade? I'm like, well, no, it's built in. And then, and then this person said, well, can you try running the smoker when it's a little cooler? And I was like, <laughs> really? Really? So apparently they were having circuit board issues. Um, and it, it kind of made me wonder, you know, well, what kind of reliability testing did they, did they actually do on this thing? Um, so nonetheless, you know, being the engineer that I was, I put together a seven-page PowerPoint deck, a lot of detail with suggestions on how they can improve, including how they can improve improve their, their mobile application. Um, so I got two phone calls, one from the vice president of engineering, the other one from the vice president of um, uh, product development, uh, gave my feedback, et cetera. So ultimately I got a, a new smoker out of the whole thing, which finally did work, which means they must've resolved their, their circuit board issues. Um, so that was uh, uh, my, my experience with smoking. <laughs> Thanks, John. Carol, that kind of reminds me of my next question. Uh, you know, John had to figure out with the OEM uh, what an outdoor smoker was and what it wasn't. And one of the things that I noticed in both yours and Chad's presentations that, uh, that I've listened to uh, partially in preparation for the show is that you guys spend as much time, if not more, defining what demand-driven is not as you do what demand-driven is. So I was wondering if you could share with the audience what demand-driven is just simply not. Yeah, it's and it's interesting because we've been fighting this actually back to 2001. When we first introduced the concept to the analysts of the day, they told us it was the single stupidest idea they'd ever heard in their lives. And they said, all you're talking about is just everything make to order. 
Well, that's not it. Because if you go to the grocery store, you're not willing to wait for the cow to get that quart of milk. They say, well, it's just sprinkling inventory everywhere. Well, that's not it either. You know, we do need decoupling points in our supply chain to absorb variability, but they're very specifically strategically selected because they determine both our customer lead time and our inventory investment. And then they said, well, it's just optimization. Well, no, that shows that there's even a, uh, a whole misunderstanding about how a supply chain works. A supply chain is indeed not even a chain. That's part of the problem that we have today. And so we can't just wait till a customer order miraculously shows up and that we produce to that order. We have to be prepared uh, with having these strategic place decoupling points so that we can do that sense and adapt. So it's uh, really taking a look at the supply chain as a holistic system. It's something that's a relatively new science called the complex adaptive system. So the whole idea of optimization mathematically doesn't even fit a supply chain. So we do spend a lot of time describing what it's not. And then uh, amazingly, some of those analysts that told us it was the stupidest thing they ever heard several years later were now starting to write about demand-driven supply chain networks. And at the top of their pyramid, they were writing it was all about improving a forecast. Well, that's <laughs> never what it's been about either. Because right, I can have a forecast that's 100% accurate and still not be able to deliver what my customer wants when they want it and be able to adapt to the changes in the market. Because, you know, somebody please tell me, you know, three months ago that, you know, we'd be at a, you'd be on your 11th week of uh, being quarantined at home. So, you know, how do you forecast that? You need to be able to sense and adapt. And so that's what it's all about. But, yeah, there's been a lot of misconceptions over the years. It's funny, Carol, because I also understand that there's just a lot of people that just believe that you're anti-forecast. Oh, yes. If you want to see some of the nastiest diatribe on LinkedIn, <laughs> just put in Demand-Driven Institute and forecast. And oh, my word, let the blazing begin. And we never said that. Um, you need forecasts to be able to do sales and operations planning. What else? How else would you do it? You have to forecast to do strategic planning. You have to forecast to be able to do tactical planning. But please keep that horrible forecast out of your operational planning. You want to be able to dedicate your resources to what it is that your customers really want to buy, not building what you've set up as some arbitrary schedule of what you can and will build. So, oh, you hit one of the hottest spots out there. Yeah, the, the forecasting crowd likes to say we're very anti-forecast. And, yeah. in fact, we never said that. Well, Carol, I mean, you did just officially use the F word on my show. I did. <laughs> I'll, uh, one of the things that Carol talked about, about when she was at PeopleSoft, as well as, you know, just one of the things that attracted me so much to the throughput platform uh, is this whole concept of multidisciplinary, that there is all these different amazing tools out there. And oftentimes, people always want to just gravitate towards one tool. And one of the things that really impressed me about throughput is that you've got a multidisciplinary approach to optimizing supply chain results. Can you explain why this is important and give a few of examples of what some of those multi multidisciplinary tools are? Yes, um, throughput uh, is building powerful enterprise uh, level solutions. And one of our um, main uh, products is called Eli, uh, inspired by <laughs> Yahoo Gold, right? Um, we are um, pretty much uh, basing our um, 
methodology on three main pillars. The first one is to leverage advancement of technology and artificial intelligence to take advantage of speed, the ability to connect to uh, different data sources um, that are um, in a lot of cases siloed and not connected within the um, organization and ability to learn from the data quickly and extract meaningful information. But as you, as you think about uh, AI, artificial brain needs to learn from something. Not only when, uh, when you talk about it, it needs to be uh, uh, having access to a lot of data to learn from, but also um, there should be foundations built for, um, uh, for the uh, logic to derive the right conclusions from, as well as um, um, you need to provide uh, the focusing area of what is the goal to optimize the results around. So um, that's it uh, brings us to um, why we need to use the multidisciplinary approach. Um, we've been inspired by thought leaders that uh, pretty much revolutionized the space of operations excellence and focus on continuous improvement uh, like uh, Eddie Goldratt, Aichiono, Deming, Walter Short, um, and uh, resulting disciplines like theory of constraints, theory of profound knowledge, Lean, Six Sigma, just-in-time, total quality management. But finally, the third pillar for us is that uh, each decision and recommendation that uh, the software um, provides um, in the system is linked to the local linking the local to global impact from the financial perspective. And that financial perspective, as we know, you know, there is a traditional accounting and there is um, another side of looking at uh, your results from throughput accounting lens. Um, and you also want to uh, make sure that if you are going from strategic to tactical, that, uh, that evaluation is also, um, you can also apply the financial aspect uh, of the uh, analysis to it. So as the goal of any op operation is to maximize the overall throughput, the value generation for the company and its shareholders, we strive to provide that link and evaluation of impact at each level of the operation excellence journey. Yeah, I really like the uh, data to dollars approach that, uh, that throughput has taken. Uh, and I think on my net for now on, uh, on my, my following shows, I'm going to ask people to have their favorite alcoholic beverage. And every time a rooster crows, we have to do a drink and see how much more interesting the episode gets by the end of the show. <laughs> I think that would be a, I think that'd be a great addition, uh, and, and be more on brand with bootleg. Uh, so you know, Carol, when we start looking at the multidisciplinary approaches that Allah highlighted, many of them, such as theory of constraints and lean, are all about establishing and sustaining flow. In fact, one of mine and yours favorite uh, shared quotes by George Blossel is that all benefits will be related to the speed of flow of materials and information. What is flow and why is it so important? Well, initially, John, flow is really the concept that harmonizes 
all the improvement methodologies out there. It harmonizes theory of constraints with Lean, with Six Sigma, and even MRP. And a lot of people are surprised. It was George Plazel that always said, I was never in an audience to listen to George, that he didn't say all benefits are directly related to the speed of flow. So that's the F word I prefer. Uh, <laughs> and what flow is, you know, because you can't, I mean, let's face it, you know, we can't improve something if we can't measure it. So what is flow? Flow is the rate at which a system, not a computer system, but a company converts product uh, to things that are required by a customer. Okay, so flow is the rate at which a company converts products to products required by a customer. And that rate of flow is critical. Now, there's an additional word that we need to add to George's, uh, George's he called it his first rule of manufacturing. Uh, we call it the first law of supply chain management. And Ala did a great job of touching on this. Not all materials and not all information is relevant. So it's all about the speed of flow of relevant materials and information. You know, and this is why I was so interested to be on your show is OEE necessary but not sufficient. People get so enamored with what they can measure that they forget about what they should measure. <laughs> and so how is it that we look at those metrics and the financial impact of those things that are relevant? And one of the common mistakes that's made is that uh, fixed costs are considered for an operational decision. Well, they're not relevant because they're fixed. So those fixed costs only come into play when we're making a strategic decision. So this concept of flow is, uh, I think Ellie would have probably called it the great unifying field theory. Uh, just before he passed away in 2011, that's, that was really sort of, he says, I've had more interesting thoughts and more insights in the last six months of his life than he says he's had for years. And he says, I'm looking for the great unifying field theory. And I really think it is, if had he survived a little longer, he would have described it because he was very specifically writing about TOC and Lean and how flow is the unifier of those two. So it's that rate at which a company converts materials to products required by a customer. So, Alo, is, is, I'm assuming that this is also connected to why throughput focuses all of your approaches on eliminating bottlenecks to sustain and improve flow. Yes. Uh, at the same time, it's worth mentioning that um, we're not trying to chase bottlenecks, even though, you know, we can dynamically detect what they are in the current environment and uh, direct attention of, uh, you know, our operations excellence uh, users to, uh, to eliminate them. But really, we want to move them away from chasing bottlenecks to really have a focused, constraint-driven uh, approach, right, where you know what is the main resource that is limiting the throughput of your operation. And you, you bring in bringing the conversation back to the OEE metric, you do want to make sure that your OEE is perfect for that particular limiting resources, resource that you have. But then everything else in your organization should be really subordinating to, um, to that drumbeat uh, in a way. Um, and, uh, and there it becomes more important to, to drive variability out of your processes so that you know that you have... Um, resources, uh, machines uh, that are utilized in the predictable manner and you can rely on a specific um, output uh, that, that can be linked to uh, supporting that uh, bottleneck step, that strategic bottleneck step that you really want to focus your operation around. So that uh, 
kind of uh, brings us to a point where there is a difference between uh, OEE that uh, needs to be a, a, a golden target, right, versus the uh, knowing based on your variability what's your achievable OEE that you can strive for. And then the third one is making sure that you, you do utilize your kind of productive capacity to the extent that it doesn't create more waste and more excess inventory in your system that is not needed for your operation. Um, I, I had a visual when you were talking about it's not about ra racing around chasing the bottleneck. All of a sudden, I had a I had a visual Carol of you running around your ranch with a rubber mallet and playing whack a mole. <laughs> 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 Carol, do you want to share uh, before we get into the next question? Do you want to share your story a little bit about the about kind of where it is that uh, when when you're not uh, actually. It's about the, the uh, life that you live whenever you're not on the road uh, and how you're off grid. Well, we'll talk about a bimodal life. Uh, usually I spend my life on the road. You know, people ask me, they say, where do you live? And I tell them an American Airlines airplane. Uh, when I'm <laughs> not traveling, as you just intimated, I live in southeastern Arizona. Most people think of Arizona as Phoenix in the valley, but uh, I actually live at about 5,200 feet of elevation on a working cattle ranch, uh, and I have, we are the only uh, commercial operation of purebred registered Scottish Highlands, so I made sure I chased all the cattle out so that uh, they wouldn't be competing with your roosters for some background noise today. <laughs> Excellent. So, you also pointed out in uh, the, the materials that I was reviewing that uh, the data suggests that organizations are not only failing to adapt but that there's actually something even worse going on. What is it you see that's happening? My understanding with MRP since it's almost since the advent of MRP in 1965 to today, what is it that you see that's happening and what does the data point to? Well, it's an interesting thing. It came, something that came out of Deloitte University Press and they tracked the return on assets for asset-based American-owned businesses and from 1965 to 2012, that number fell from 4.1% to 0.9%. And as any business manager knows, the direction you want return on assets going is not down. And what was even more interesting is uh, a couple of years ago, Harvard Business Review ran an article from some of the researchers that they looked at the American stock market. Here's the, here's the backbone of our economy. And they estimated that one out of three American-owned companies will delist, in other words, cease to exist in the next five years. Now, it might be they go bankrupt. It could be that they're mergers, acquisitions, or whatever, but they're going to cease to exist. Now, let's add to that the triple threat of the COVID crisis, and you're watching companies that if they fail to adapt, they're basically, they only have two choices. Uh, either you learn how to adapt and change at a rate of speed that's faster than what is going on around you, or you're going to die. And that's really the only two choices. And all that COVID has done is sped that up in a lot of cases. And you know, it was interesting to me how many executives found themselves really flat-footed when this crisis hit. And you sort of have to shake your head because you say, you know, we have a crisis about every 10 years. We don't know what it's going to be. We don't know when it's going to be. We don't know specifically, you know, when it's going to happen, but we know it is going to happen. You know, we had the stock market crash in uh, 2008, you know, when all of the banks went crazy, you know, back in 
2001 with 9-11. You know, you keep going back and you think, you know, we've got to learn how to sense these changes and adapt faster because our only other choices is that, well, you know, we're going to hit that topple rate and we're going to be the ones that are going to topple out of business. That's absolutely fascinating whenever you look at just the consistency of the data. And John, I know that you have, specific to the CPG in the food and beverage industry, you wrote an article that was actually published in uh, Food and Bev magazine uh, a number of years ago that looked at as simple as across manufacturing line, packaging lines and that you've seen a tremendous difference between leaders and laggards and what they were actually able to get out of those packaging lines and assets. Could you share at a high level some of the summary information of what you saw in the differences of performers, performance between leaders and laggards? Sure. So we studied, uh, I don't know, close to a 1,000 global manufacturing operations um, in, in that food and beverage and CPG sector. A uh, couple of interesting statistics. One is uh, best in class is about 82%. Um, a little short of 85. A lot of people quote 85 as best in class. We quote 82 because we base it on a top quartile concept. It's not a data point. It's you know it's a 25% segment uh, that represents that. Laggards are half that. So the laggards are at about 31.2% actually. So um, big difference between those two groups. A uh, couple of other interesting statistics um, in that industry. Uh, an average production line stops 20,000 times a year. Think about that for a minute. Wow. If you're an operator on a production line, um, that's what you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and probably uh, changeover uh, is, is a category that's very relevant for this discussion today because we find that um, – uh, gone are the days of long production runs. So companies are changing over um, certainly daily, many times, multiple, multiple times within a day. And so changeovers in, in themselves can be anywhere from five to 10 OEE points um, worth of value in terms of what that represents from a uh, capacity on a production line. So couple of interesting statistics. Oh, that's very interesting information. Uh, Carol, when we start talking about data, you speak to it as four prerequisites of relevant information. Could you uh, share with the audience what those four prerequisites are? And could you also uh, link, the, what's the link between the visibility of relevant information and variability? If you could link those two for the audience. You bet. Let me start with the second part of your question, John. I was is we were chatting a little bit before the show started. I was born and raised in Buffalo, New York, uh, and when you're a kid in Buffalo and you learn how to drive in Buffalo, one of the things you learn how to drive in is snowstorms. And as any good native Buffalonian will tell you, is that when those whiteouts hit, you doesn't mean you don't drive. You just go a little slower, a little slower. Uh, and it's the same way we run a business. When I don't have visibility, I tend to move more slowly. Because what happens is, is when I have visibility to relevant information, then I can make a more informed decision, which means that I can mitigate variability. Now, as I mitigate variability, variability is the nemesis of flow. Okay, if you think about it, it's public enemy number one. Uh, because the more variability that I have, the more I'm negatively impacting flow. And what we know from George's law is that as flow improves, 
uh, so does our cash flow and so does our net profit divided by our investment, which of course is return on investment. So now the real question that we can get to as an executive is, well, how do I get that uh, holy grail of relevant information? What is it? Well, as you mentioned, there's four prerequisites to that. The first one is understanding relevant range. And this is probably one of the most critical ideas is that there's an operational relevant range, which is pretty short. It's what I do today, this week, uh, maybe up to this month. And then I have a tactical relevant range. And in, in traditional planning, those two things have been tended to be mushed together in the use of a master production schedule. But in the demand-driven world, we separate those because different information is relevant operationally versus tactically. And then, of course, you've got the strategic relevant range. How is it that I can look out to the point where all my capacity and all my costs now become variable? So those things that are fixed costs and not relevant in, a, uh, in the operational relevant range are now most certainly relevant as we look at that strategic relevant range. And for your other favorite F word, forecasts, absolutely relevant in the strategic relevant range, absolutely devastating in the operational relevant range. So those four prerequisites is first that idea of a relevant range. Second, now we need a tactical bi-directional reconciliation between the strategic relevant range and the operational relevant range. This is what Dick Lang, the father of SNOP, always refers to as the missing link. Uh, when he and Andy Kaldrick were working together on what they called Breakthrough SNOP, he said, we just really hope somebody's going to figure out the operational side because we know that sales and operations planning needs to be bi-directional. But how do you do that? Well, the answer is you can't with a master production schedule. You most certainly can when you now have operations that is set up to have a range of capability. You also need a flow-based operating model, which is how you get that range of capability on the operational side. It's not about having a schedule and sticking to it, no matter what the customer really wants. We want to be able to sense, adapt, and innovate because we're using this flow-based operating model and it sets a range of capability. And then last, we need metrics. And this is why, you know, I was so excited to be with John and one of his former companies on his advisory board. You know, as we start to take a look at these real-time metrics, how do I know when I'm going the right way? But they have to be relevant. If I just give you a speed on your car, it's not relevant unless you know what road you're on, what direction you're going, and what the speed limit happens to be. So it has to have relevance. So we have to have the metrics uh, that go along with that flow-based operating model. Because what stops things so quickly is when those cost metrics get in the way, that efficiency, utilization, overhead absorption uh, gets in the way of really improving flow in a manufacturing company. I remember that uh, one of the other things that you had pointed out in uh, one of the videos that I had watched was that originally you were actually looking for a, you thought you were looking for a pipe connector to talk about, uh, about the, uh, about the, the relevant range. And then the more you looked at it and you started recognizing the bi-directional flow, you ended up with a bridge instead of a, uh, instead of a pipe connector. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that was a real aha. I mean, you know, I'm so blessed in my life. Not only did I get, a write, get to write a book with Ellie Goldrat, I'm currently working on a new sales and operations planning book with the father of SNOP. Uh, Dick Ling is 83 years old, as sharp as he's ever been. And we spent hours trying to figure out a way to, to describe that bi-directionality between uh, strategy and operations and operations and strategy. And every graphic I kept finding on the internet either had a valve or it had a pressure gauge. 
And then finally, the two of us looked at each other because we share such a background with our Apex education and, you know, and understanding how things should work that all of a sudden we got the, this brainstorm that said, here's how things could work. And we realized that it really had to be a bridge. It really had to be a bi-directional bridge because as you know, flow can only go one way in a pipe. Yep. So yeah, we struggled. I hate to tell you, every time I see that slide, I, I just, I, I laugh because I think of how many hundreds of hours we wasted trying to figure out how to connect strategy to operations, operations to strategy, trying to connect pipes and realizing it's not that at all. It's a bi-directional bridge. That's another one of your overnight successes, Carol. It only took a few uh-huh. hundred hours. Yeah. <laughs> so, John, interestingly enough, whenever Carol talks about the relevant range and she talks about operational, tactical, and strategic relevant ranges, when I look at your three tools that you have on the, in the Sage Clarity Suite, uh, it really appears to me that you have almost like a tool for each one of those relevant ranges. Uh, do you want to speak to that a little bit with the audience? Sure. So, so we have an interesting set of uh, these MES ecosystem applications. So the, the first one really speaks to the operational value, which is a product called ABLE. And what it does is it's used for real-time progressive root cause analysis. It's a classic case of where OEE is truly necessary but not sufficient. And on complex production lines, what happens is downtime propagates up and down the line. Um, a simple OE measure is not going to capture that. And so what this piece of technology does is it really ties um, those downtime events that move through a production line and ties them back to the constraint. And it does that all automatically in, in real time, if you will. Um, the next one, which is really more of a tactical tool, but what, but, uh, what we did is uh, it's, it's a next generation Andon product. We took a white sheet approach to Andon. Um, and uh, uh, Ali, you would appreciate this from your Tesla background, but we took a Toyota concept of Andon from the 50s and we have now applied it into other industries and made it IoT centric. So historically, Andon has been a very tactical method for attracting uh, attention to problems. We've taken a holistic approach and made it strategic by bringing visibility to a host of issues from quality to maintenance to safety issues even. Um, and then the last is really around uh, strategic relevance, which is really OneView. Uh, OneView um, has the most unique perspective regarding KPIs and by creating what we call the shallow dive experience. Uh, Apex actually did a cover story article on this concept. And what we found is that most executives don't use BI applications. So we created a user experience that executives find more useful. And it's just the idea of being able to skim through data quickly to get uh, valuable insight. Thanks, John. Uh, Carol, this is going to be kind of the last question before the wrap-up of the show. Throughput makes a pretty bold statement that I really like in, the, in, in, in their approach. And they say that if you cannot leverage existing data to empower existing teams to solve current operational process bottlenecks, you are not ready for digital transformation. Uh, and the stuff that I've been following of yours, you know, one of the things that you and Chad talk a lot about is you implore the audience to actually invest in thoughtware. Can you define what thoughtware is and why you think it is one of the most important things that an organization can invest in? It is the most critical thing that an organization can invest in. Thoughtware is, we describe it, it's the software that runs between your ears. 
as we look at the most successful demand-driven implementations, uh, they're the ones that have invested in the education of their people. You know, not in sophisticated hardware and software and consulting services, but invest in, their pe in your people's ability to think and to think systemically. Because if people can't think systemically, then it's absolutely impossible for them to identify these impediments to flow across the organization. Supply chains are not chains. Supply chains are complex adaptive systems, and we have to manage our companies systemically, holistically, which means that we need to get people out of their silos and thinking systemically. I absolutely agree uh, with my colleagues over at Throughput. We need to be able to take a step back, look at the information that we have already, and look at those things that we've tried to solve these problems multiple times, because what they're indicative of is an unresolved conflict inside of a company. And usually what that conflict comes down to is a conflict between cost and flow. And this is probably the toughest thing for execs to get their brains wrapped around is because they have been so programmed in their MBA schools and in their business degrees that it's all about cost. And that if I only can drive down cost, I'll improve ROI. Well, that's something that we call is a deep truth. And a deep truth is something that everybody believes and is absolutely and unequivocally false. You know, we've done it before. At one point, we thought the Earth was the center of the universe. We thought the world was flat. We thought India was west of Europe. So, you know, this isn't the first time. And management today is fixated on cost. And what, what the COVID crisis really pointed out is a cost-focused supply chain is unable to sense and adapt and pivot as quickly as required for the changing market conditions. So it's shifting from cost to flow. And such a simple concept, but you'd be surprised at how difficult that is for executives to get their brains wrapped around. If I focus on flow, costs will always achieve their natural minimum and ROI goes up because that's really what it's all about. It's not about improving forecasts. It's not about reducing costs. It's about improving company ROI. And the companies that have invested in thoughtware and have made that jump from cost to flow, we see ROIs going up by an order of magnitude. I mean, results that I was at Demand Driven World a couple years ago when we were in Germany, that a senior executive from a very large software company leaned forward. He said, that's incredible. And I said, you do realize that that's average for us, right? And he looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, we see those results all the time. He said, well, it's just incredible. With the tech. I said, not the technology, it's the thoughtware. It's changing how we think and shifting to the systemic view with a focus on flow because all benefits are directly related to the speed of flow of relevant information and materials. And that's, flow is that great unifier. That's awesome, Carol. Thank you very much. Uh, and Thoughtware leads into a, a perfect wrap for this week. Uh, and uh, because next week's show is going to be focusing on how do you develop the workforce of the future? And we've got three amazing guests, uh, Dr. Jennifer Blaylock, Kelly Ireland, and Tim Dutton will be joining us. All three of them have been in varying degrees of workforce development and education their entire career. And we're going to be talking about hot careers and how to develop that workforce of the future. So until next week, don't forget to move your to-dos to to-dones, to to-dones, to I'm sorry. And uh, above all else, keep on bootlegging. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Bootlegged Innovations. Be sure to join John Schultz again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk again next week. 